Where Ideas Launch, the podcast for the sustainable innovator. We won't save the planet by recycling 50% of our waste. We save it by not creating waste. Season two goes heavily into circular business models and innovation while creating a space to discuss issues important to our society, like education. Join me and my guest as we explore and create pathways toward a future for the planet. This is part one of a two-part episode. I'm joined today by Chris Perry, CEO of the Learning Futures Group. He's an experienced talent leader obsessed with making the future workplace better. Formerly a global VP of online learning at Oracle and chief learning officer at Microsoft, Chris's entire career has been spent working at the intersection between workplace learning and technology. He now provides advisory services to enterprise organizations and edtech vendors including the Josh Burson Academy and the Future Workplace Academy. In 2019, Chris launched the Learning Futures Group to help organizations rethink their learning and development strategy in the face of historic workplace disruption and change. He launched Learning is the New Working, my favorite podcast, about the future of workplace learning and the people helping us get there as part of his research activities. The podcast has had over 30,000 downloads. He's also a founding director of Humentum. Hi, Chris, and welcome to Where Ideas Launch. Catherine, thanks so much. I'm, I'm honoured to be here. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on the show because you don't know this, but your podcast has been a big part of my 2020 story. I attended a Learning Futures conference in London in the first week of February, I think it was, so just over a year ago, and I got hooked on many of the speakers and all of them spoke about your podcast. Oh wow. <laughs> Which was quite remarkable. And once I started listening, I got hooked in and it started to help me reshape the entire way I crafted my business. So once the pandemic happened and I started to pivot to doing courses and programs, I started to focus in on the future of work and in some of the career work that I was doing. So you've had a big part of, of my story. Oh wow. Well, um uh, I'm I'm flattered and I'm excited. Um, was the conference at the Excel Center by any yes, chance? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Before yeah, I, it was an NHS hub. <laughs> yeah, it was about a year ago. And I was thinking about this the other day. It was actually in in February, I think, of 2020. And it was w- one of the last trips that I made. Um, and that, that building turned out, you know, like one month later, it was a like 3,000 bed field hospital. Um, yeah. It was amazing. And yeah. yet the energy of that conference, we didn't know what was waiting around the corner for us. No, and I just we, remember we no s- this the last time I was with 3,000 people in one room. <laughs> it yeah. now feels like a very scary thing. It's it's quite striking to think back that it was only a year ago. Um, yeah. so, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that podcast because I find it really transformative. And I know that you have 30,000 downloads. It's called Learning is a New Working. And can you tell my listeners why you thought the statement could be true. Yeah, I think um, I, I can't remember exactly how I stumbled across that title. I wanted something that was uh, fun. But what I, what I like about it is um, there's sort of, I think it's a useful frame for two reasons. One is my work is really about how we can prepare the world for a future of work that's going to be very different, especially in the light of how we've prepared people for the world of work in the past has not been excellent. So let, let me put it that way. So how do how do we prepare people uh, for the world of work? And and I think learning is the new working does two things. One is it sort of tells the story 
of how modern work and how it looks like work is going in the future is going to be highly dependent on the ability to learn quickly and effectively. That, that's, that's always your best bet in a world of change, right? It's like the, the secret source of humanity is that we can be plastic, we can learn, we can respond, we can adapt, and we can be agile. And that's particularly useful in times of change. And a lot of what I'm reading tells me that we are at this time of incredible change. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Learning is, is, is one of the ways that you will be effective in work increasingly in the future. The second thing is that as I sort of studied this, it turns out that learning is really hard, especially when you're an adult, especially once you get past your sort of middle 20s. Um, you absolutely retain the ability to learn and brain plasticity is, is available to you through your entire life. I'm a big fan of lifelong learning, um, but it gets hard, right? It happens with no effort until you're in your mid 20s and then it requires uh, an extraordinary amount of effort to really learn new things, new models, new processes, new behaviors, and new, new facts and, and information. And so, so I like learning is the new working from those two angles because it talks to the future of how we're gonna get by at work. And it also talks to something that I feel very strongly about and that is a new scientific approach that we need to helping people get better at being learners. Absolutely. I think that's such an important um, part of the story. Um, I would say that for myself, I have pivoted careers at least every four years, four to five years and radical pivots as well. So okay. I probably don't necessarily agree that it gets harder, but I do agree that it gets harder to sell it <laughs> at times yeah. when, you, when you're pivoting and changing. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about sustainable development and the goals around that. There are two goals in particular that I feel I need to talk about in this podcast as it is sustainable leaning. One yeah. is goal eight, decent work and economic growth. And the other one is goal four about quality education. Mm. And my question for you is which one do you think we are likely to struggle to get to more? Will it be oh, well. a challenge around decent work yeah. and economic growth or quality education? Well, the first thing is I love the idea of, I love this frame for your podcast. I mean, to be honest with you, I wasn't super familiar with, with these um, sustainable goals, the, the United Nations set, set of goals. I, I definitely come across them, but I hadn't really studied them. And, and I love it. I mean, I think it's obviously a codification of the challenges we face as humanity. And that's very much in frame right now. And uh, so I like this and I like that approach to your podcast. So congratulations on, on, on doing that. A couple of things I would say. One is that studying the international aid sector, this is not my area of expertise, but it's something that I've really enjoyed studying and learning from. And I, I'm going to frame it up. I'll come back to your question specifically, but I want to frame it up first. I think the work of international aid is fascinating. I mean, it's loaded with, you know, sort of post-colonial uh, baggage, um, but it's $200 billion worth of activity around the world. And when you meet people who are engaged in that, you know, they're usually super people <laughs> that operate with purpose and integrity. And I love being around those people. And one of the things that I learned was, the whole business of international aid is essentially two things. One is it's funneling money to where it's needed. 
And secondly, it's finding the capability um, and capacity to get the work done, whatever it is, water projects, education projects, health projects, so on and so forth. So it's cash and it's training, right? In, in its kind of simplest form. And uh, because it operates under such a lot of constraints, uh, I really learned a lot about training, about learning, workplace learning, by studying the sector. Uh, and I really did learn a lot. And, and some key principles in my work come from, from that. For example, one principle is use what you have. In the private sector where I come from, you know, we spend staggering amounts of money. In fact, more money is spent in corporate workplace learning, the best estimates, $360 billion, than is spent in international aid. And so that, that's workplace learning investment to a very tiny fraction of the human population. And uh, it's actually not really very good. That's the dirty little secret. Um, so anyway, so, I, so point one is I, I study the international aid space, not as an expert, but as somebody who wants to learn from, from great work that happens there around agility and, and um, impact and so on and so forth. The twin goals of education and work, right? Really, really interesting. You know, as I read them carefully, a lot of the education one, which I think is number four, is that correct? Yes. Um, it's a lot about childhood education. That's not my area of expertise at all. I, I, I really defer uh, on that one. But it's clear, you know, if you read works like Hans Roslin's work, um, Factfulness, which is one of my favorite books, um, you know, he'll tell you the correlation between educating children and, and moving humanity and society forward is so blindingly obvious that we just need to get better at doing it. We need to spend more money doing it. And we need to be equitable in how we give people childhood education opportunities. It's, it's crystal clear, you know, kind of, I'm done. It's, I'm out of my expertise, my, my league now, but just whatever we can do to improve that seems to me like uh, absolutely um, a slam dunk. And it links to your earlier point as well about how easy it is at that age as well to assimilate. Yeah, true. I mean, that, that's absolutely true. And, and I think, you know, when you get, um, you know, when you get uneducated youth uh, in the world, bad things happen. They're easily exploited. They're, they're you know, put to, put to bad ends. Um, it's clearly not good. So, um, yeah, educating kids, educating women, educating everybody should be a massive priority end of story as far as I'm concerned. What can we do to make that happen? There's a really interesting story that I learned. One of my favorite episodes of the podcast, um, and it wasn't me doing the interviewing. It was a, a friend of mine called Lutz Ziob, who does a lot of work in Africa. And he found this amazing guy uh, called Rob Burnett. And Rob is a Scotsman. And he ended up in East Africa. And he's built this incredible organization. I mean, it is a model for so many things. I remember um, the episode. <laughs> yeah. And he, he basically, you know, I think a lot about the future of work. And one of the things that I, I f did when I first started this project was I went to learn how to think about the future because there are people who do that and it's not crystal ball gazing. It's a discipline and a science and there's tools and techniques you can use. And I wanted to understand them a little bit. And um, one great phrase that those people throw around a lot is, um, is actually a science fiction writer whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, science fiction writer, and he says, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. 
And so you, you look for futures around. And so that's kind of a little bit about what I do in the podcast. I'm looking for p- possible futures, people who are doing things really, really well, people on the cutting edge. And Rob Burnett is one of those people, but his future is quite dystopian because he tells a story of how, uh, I think it was in 2019 in, in East Africa, 1.2 million people will graduate from the education system. To your point, you know, goal number four, job well done. You know, 1.2 million people educated. So that somewhere between the age of 18 and you know, 16 and 18, these people are educated and they're skilled and they can read and so on and so forth. And they come out of the education system and less than 5% of them get a job that you or I would recognize as a job, i.e., you know, somewhere you go religiously every week and get a paycheck at the end of the week. So these people go onto the streets and they find ways to operate. And I'm not going to tell his whole story, but he helps those people. He reaches out to those people and he gives them skills that they need to do what they do more effectively. And he calls it the Hustler MBA. And he speaks in the language and cultural tropes that they understand. Um, He's built this network of 5 million people. And he started by producing a comic, like using what he had, like the simplest technologies he could get his hands on. And he's gone on to build, you know, social media really accelerated his his practice. Um, And it's a really amazing story. So I think that's a little bit of an illustration of, you know, if we get people through school, the job isn't done when they leave school. They're going to continue to need to learn. They're going to continue to get experiences. They're going to continue to need skills, many of which are, have an increasingly short shelf life. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of area of work where, where we hang out. And it's, it's interesting because I think we have had a number of overlapping challenges come upon us in 2020 um, yeah. in a way that we hadn't expected. So even even yourself as a workplace futures person, you would have been surprised at what we were able to do in 2020 and, and how things have changed, right? So we have this sort of perfect storm um, it's and it's either actually going to be a storm or an acceleration, mm. right? Uh, I, mm. I'm not going to say which, but yeah. but history tells us that depressions and recessions are followed by opportunity and by growth. Yeah. But history never had AI, <laughs> um, yes. and and I think there are a lot of a lot of things that that this can challenge. So I, I probably have three parts to this question. So I'll ask you one at a time. And yeah, the first good. one is, <laughs> how can we ensure that? the strain on services, the climate change impact, this whole biodiversity bit, as well as the rapid advancements in AI, do not become a permanent loss in jobs for humanity? Yeah. Well, that's a huge question, I think. Um, and I, I do think that one possible future is, is that, that, that what we think of as jobs today don't exist in the future. There, there are many people who think that. There's Rob Burnett's world in East Africa where that's already true. And, you know, the idea of having one contract with one employer uh, who um, takes care of your benefits and, and salary, that is really under threat. And it's under threat from a number of different directions. And it's likely to evolve. And we know this because, of you, as you say, you look at history as a guide, right? So when I think I always like to start and I spent six months at the beginning of this journey, 
thinking about what are the forces at work? Like what are the macro forces at work? And this was of course before 2020. And you know, the forces at work were really kind of maybe sort of four unarguable things that would likely change the way everything happens. One, of course, was climate change and what's going on with our environment. And that's really hard, I think, for people to get their head around because it's happening in, in, in such an abstract way for many, many people. If you don't live in these extreme climate areas, you probably haven't noticed the change. But I can tell you, the oil industries notice the change. And, you know, the people who, who live on these edges and in these futures, they notice the change and you're seeing the behaviors happen. So that's one thing that um, I don't have a lot of expertise in, but clearly it's going to drive uh, a lot of shifts in population. You know, you can map out what's likely to happen as a result of climate change to, to humanity. Um, the second thing is technology. And, you know, I think you talked uh, maybe in your introduction about the fourth industrial revolution. You know, we've got, we know what happens when a radically new technology comes along. It changes how we organize our work. It also changes how we organize our society and uh, maybe even how we think about our gods. I mean, it has fundamental changes. Um, and we know that over the last 300 years, there was this kind of steady drumbeat of, of changes based on really on energy, actually at the, at the heart of it, what, what energy we use to, to power the tools that we, can, that we have, that we've invented in that kind of era. And so this is all well documented. In 1860, people moved from the farm and into the, into the, you know, into the workshop and then into the factory and and then we started to automate things through computing in the 1960s. And we had this sort of 100-year drumbeat. But there's nothing that says um, 100 years is the magic number. And in fact, here we are just like 30 or 40 years after um, uh, you know, the information age. And we've got this incredible new set of technologies that most commentators think is, you know, described as the fourth industrial revolution. That is a set of technologies that are going to change our world so fundamentally that we'll have to reorganize around pretty much everything, especially work. Um, and you, you mentioned AI. Um, you know, AI is clearly going to have a massive impact on, on the world of work. Uh, machines are going to be better we know this. Machines are better at doing things than we are. That's why we build them in the first place. And thinking machines, as some people call these AI machines, are going to be able to scour much more data than we can ever consume as humans. They're going to be able to compute at a much faster rate and already can than, than, than we can as humans. And they're going to be able to organize themselves. And so this, this is a profound shift. And one of the things that really um, made me sit up and take notice around AI was somebody said, you can think about the impact that AI will have on the world in the same way as the impact that electricity had in the world. Yeah. So it's not something that's just going to apply to a few niche areas and jobs and, and vertical industries. It's going to change everything, absolutely everything. And so that's kind of a lot to get your head around. Um, one of the reactions that we're seeing is this shift to thinking about our humanity. Like if we can't calculate as fast as this machine, 
And we can't consume data as fast as this machine. And we can't make connections and learn as a, as a cohesive unit like the machines can. What can we do? Where does our strength and where does our advantage lie? And this is what gives me a lot of hope at the moment is you know, the answers to these questions you know, all lie in our very humanity. And I think the interesting work that's going on today is kind of focused around that. And I can see it writ large, um, even in the world, in the corporate world where I hang out. And then let's just talk a little bit about 2020 because you know, when I started this project, my mission was, was to disrupt the industry that I'd just spent 30 working years working in because I, I felt that we weren't moving fast enough to help all the people that needed to be helped. And I felt that you know, our practice was out of date, 100 years old, moving people into training courses and telling them what to do and then sending them out and expecting them to do it. You know, this was the work of the early 1900s and, and we hadn't really moved beyond. And so I had this notion that we needed a new learning science that helped people be really effective learners based on progress that we'd made in a number of different scientific, scientific disciplines. And I wrote this, I'm going to show you this. I wrote this little book, which was the, the kind of me getting my thoughts together around the whole project. And it was called a learning disruptors handbook. And it was going to be, you know, like, you know, like an album by the clash and it was going to be a call to action and to tell people how they were wasting their time. And then along came, you know, more disruption than I could have possibly imagined um, in the form of the global pandemic. And this has been, you know, the disruptive so far, you know, the most disruptive action of, of my life and, and probably my generation and probably this era. And, you know, all kinds of amazing things have happened and we're all sat here with our heads spinning, figuring out, you know, what of this is going to be permanent and, and what's going to happen afterwards? How do we you know, how do we build back better to use one phrase or how do we, you know, get back to the new normal to use another phrase. So disruption, whereas my call to action was disrupt yourself, my thinking's evolved. And my call to action is rebuild yourself and rebuild yourself thoughtfully and carefully uh, with, with technology, but with humanity at the core. So I'll give you one really simple kind of um, frame around this that, that I've used for many years, for 20 years, I was an evangelist for the kind of technology that you and I are using today. This was my world. I'm like, of course you can use technology to teach people to be more effective in their workplace. That was my job. And we did, we experimented with all kinds of things and we evangelized e-learning and we evangelized digital learning and we evangelized global cohort programs and you know we did some really interesting experiments the next thing you know the evangelism job is done because people have no choice and the only way to operate now is through this kind of technology through um through digital interactions and so the job becomes different the job now becomes not how do we force everyone to use this you know kind of slightly annoying technology um, but how do we make it more human? How do we make it better? How do we take away the tyranny of uh, Zoom fatigue? And uh, how do we find technologies that bring back serendipity and bring back um, more effective collaboration and bring back 
happenstance and bring back, you know, the hug, uh, so to speak. And we will, as we know, as, as you know, this is what humans do. We build better tools and, and we will, uh, but that's the new job. Um, and we have, of course, the opportunity through this disruption to reset the agenda. Whether we'll take it or not remains to be the big question. But I think all of us have the opportunity now, especially now, right now, to think as this comes back, as the world opens up and the great work of science and vaccines um, saves us from the brink, what do we want it to be like? Let's make this a deliberate, thoughtful choice and let's right some of the wrongs that maybe happened in the past. Let's be deliberate. And so that makes this a really, really, really exciting time and one to double down and do better work. To touch on the point about technology, I mean, the technology is already there and developing even further for us to have a more intimate experience of, of, of this, right? So yeah. even, even with the screens or even the haptic suits or you know, yeah. these types of things that are, that are coming out. So I'm sure that this will improve with technology. But I guess one of my questions remains, which is, are we accelerating at a pace that we can no longer continue in our current state? Chris answers this question in part two of this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you today by Career Sketching with Catherine Ann Byam and the space where ideas launch. Career Sketching is a leadership development and coaching brand offering personalized career transition and transformation services. The space where ideas launch offers high performance group leadership coaching and strategy facilitation to businesses in the food and health sectors. To find out more, contact Catherine Ann Byam on LinkedIn.